I'm delighted that you've made it your decision to be with us tonight. And I hope you've got your Bible with you and eager to study. And I encourage you to go to the book of Judges. We'll look at chapter 2. We're going to look at some things in the context of chapter 2. And then we'll look at some related passages to all of that. Judges chapter 2 and in verse 10. There the text says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. From that text, I'm learning that Israel failed to convey the faith from one generation to the next. There arose a generation after them that did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So Israel had failed to convey the faith they had to the next generation. And I want to suggest to you the same is happening today, wherein Israel may be failing to convey that faith to the next generation, but the question is, why? Why did that happen to Israel of old, and why is that happening with us today? So why is it that quite often children are being raised by families who have faith themselves, but their children turn out to not have the same faith. Why is that? Why does that happen? Why did it happen to them? Judges 2 and verse 10 says it did happen. Now, I want to suggest to you, while you're still open to that same context, that the impact of the next generation not knowing God was quite serious. Let's pick up at the very next verse, verse 11. Let's look at 11 through 15 and then drop down to verse 19. Verse 10 had just said the next generation did not know the Lord. The impact was quite serious. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baals and Esteres. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so that he delivered them into the hand of the plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord, God had, or the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Drop down to verse 19. It came to pass that when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their doings nor from their stubborn way. So the next generation did not know the Lord. And what we're seeing is the impact indeed was serious. Here's the lesson to be learned from that. And that is just because you know God and you serve the Lord, that does not mean that your children will know God and your children will serve the Lord. It's easy to think that because I know God and I serve the Lord, then by the process of just soaking it up somehow, the process of osmosis, they're going to just soak up that religion and they will know God and they will serve the Lord. And so what I'm learning from that is it's possible, and in some cases it's altogether likely, that the next generation, your children, will not serve the Lord. And we learned that from Judges 2. The next generation did not know the Lord. It's altogether possible, and in some cases it's very likely that your children 
will not have the same faith that you have, nor serve the same God that you serve. Now, why is that? Well, let's talk now tonight about a generation that did not know God. The generation spoken of in Judges 2 and in verse 10, with our emphasis being on the question of why did they not know the Lord? The text says they didn't know. We know the serious consequences of that. But our real question is, what caused that and what led to that? And are there any implications in the context or anywhere else in the Old Testament that tells us why they did not know the Lord? Well, let's start with this. Let's understand that the previous generation knew God. Judges 2 and 10 tell us that. But the previous generation knew God. While we're right here, let's back up just a few verses to Judges 2 and in verse 7. And the text says that so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. That previous generation knew the Lord. Almost identical wording to what we find in Judges 2 and verse 7. That's just three verses before our text. We find that repeated or presented earlier in fact in Joshua 24 and 31. It says almost the same thing, but not exactly the same thing. That Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Who had known the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now here's the difference in the text. Joshua 24, 31 says, who had known all the works, where Judges 2 and in verse 7 said they had seen all the works that had been done. Here's what I'm learning from that, that Joshua knew and had seen. Joshua and that generation, they knew and they had seen the works of God. You see, the Bible tells us in Joshua 1 and verse 1, in Exodus 24 and in verse 13, and other texts as well, that Joshua was Moses' assistant on the way to Sinai. And we're not going to take the time to give every detail. I want to give a running list of things that Joshua would have witnessed and he would have seen. Because he was Moses' assistant, here's some things that he saw and he experienced. He would have been there and he would have seen the plagues. Here's they're coming out of Egypt and the plagues that are listed in Exodus chapter 7 going through chapter 12. He would have seen all of those things. He would have experienced that and had known and seen the mighty works of God. Not only that, he would have experienced and seen the crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14 of the book of Exodus. Joshua was there. He saw that. He would have been there and he would have seen when God gave them manna from heaven in Exodus uh, chapter 16 and would have eaten and have partaken of that. And so he witnessed and he saw the mighty works of God. He was there in Exodus chapter 17 when water would have come from the rock and knowing that indeed it was from the hand of God. Chapter 19, all of those events at Sinai and all the smoke that was ascending and the thundering and the lightning and all the things that surrounded the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, Joshua was there and would have seen and would have witnessed that. He would have seen the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, Numbers 9. Joshua saw the mighty works of God. We come to Numbers chapter 16, and we see at the time when there were uh, Dathan, Korah, and Abiram, that the earth swallowed them up because of their rebellion against Moses. He would have witnessed that, and he would have seen that, and he would have known exactly what had taken place. Joshua was there. He saw and he experienced that. But the text also says the elders knew and the elders saw. That is, any man that was less than 20 years of age 
was not included among the fighting men who were sentenced to die in the wilderness. We'll not take the time to go to Numbers 1, but there is the reference in Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. They tell us that any man less than 20 would not have been included in those that would have died in the wilderness. So therefore the elders that are mentioned in Joshua 24 and verse 31 could well remember all the things that Joshua remembered. They would have remembered crossing the Red Sea. They would have remembered the eating of the manna and eating a drinking of the water that came from the rock, the crossing of the Jordan. They would have remembered every bit of that and the swallowing up of Dathan, Korah, and Abiram. Now let's raise the question, what is it that impacted them? What is it that Joshua saw and knew? We know what he saw. But what was it that impacted them about seeing all of that and the elders seeing all of that in that previous generation seeing and experiencing all of that? What impacted them was the mighty works of God. So let's open our Bibles now to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, what they experienced and what they saw was the mighty works of God. Let's read verses 1 through 7. And that's what impacted them when they saw the mighty works of God that had a mighty impact upon them. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep charge, keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments. Know today that I do not speak to your, uh, with your children who have not known, who have not seen the chastening of the Lord, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Here is the mighty works of God they saw. His signs and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all of his land, which he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, that he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow and as they pursued you and how the Lord destroyed them to this day. What he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and the sons of Reuben, and how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all their substance and their possessions in the midst of all Israel. Verse 7, But your eyes have seen every great act which the Lord did, which he did. So this generation saw, and it impacted them, the text is telling us. That is, what impacted them was seeing all those mighty works of God. So that marked this generation as being different. With this generation, they got the point. With this generation, they saw and they learned and they believed and they feared. Joshua saw that. The elders saw that. But sadly, they did not transmit that faith to the next generation. So we go back to our text in Joshua chapter 2 and in verse 10. There arose a generation after them that did not know the Lord. That generation saw they feared, they understood, they got the point, they believed, they had faith, but the next generation did not. Chapter 2 and in verse 10. So the question is why? What is it that happened to that next generation? All we're trying to establish now is the previous generation, they knew God. But it didn't happen to the next generation. So let's move secondly to the question, how could they have transmitted that faith to the next generation? How could Joshua and that generation... The elders that are mentioned in Joshua 24 and Judges chapter 2, how could those people have transmitted that faith to the next generation? Could it be that since they didn't see the same deeds, they could not be moved? Could they be excused on the basis that, you know what, they didn't see those works. They didn't see the earth swallow up 
uh, three men. They didn't see the crossing of the Red Sea. They didn't experience the plagues. Therefore, they were at a disadvantage. I want to suggest to you that seeing miracles itself did not guarantee a proper reaction. You say, why would you say that? Well, because Pharaoh and the Egyptians saw those same miracles and they were not moved. So seeing the miracles within themselves doesn't guarantee that that generation is going to have faith. Pharaoh didn't. The Egyptians didn't. You see, when Israel saw the earth swallow up Dathan, Korah, and Abiram, let's go to Numbers chapter 16 to get this point, they did not easily get the point. You would think when they saw the earth swallow up three men in their households and all of their possessions that it would shake them to the core and they would change and they would never again begin to murmur because that was the very thing that brought this on them. Look at verse 41. And the next day all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron saying you've killed the people of the Lord. They didn't get the point. They saw the miracle. I want to suggest to you at the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 when Jesus had raised a man from the dead, the Pharisees acknowledged that indeed a miracle has been done. Look at John chapter 11, if you will, with me, and at verse 47. They gathered the council and said, what shall we do? This man has worked many signs. They're talking about the raising of Lazarus. It's not that he did something that might be viewed as a slide of the hand. He has raised the dead. What are we going to do now? They saw. They didn't get the point. Let's go to chapter 12 of the book of John, verse 37. There were many signs that people saw, but they yet did not believe. And although they had done many signs before them, yet they did not believe. So here's what we're learning from that. Just because miracles could have been seen did not guarantee faith. So there must have been ways to impress the next generation without them having to experience the same miracles and wonders and mighty deeds themselves. How could that be done? Well, let's go to Psalm 78. Let's go to the 78th Psalm, if you will. The way that could be done was by teaching them, the next generation that is, from the law. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. So as we go to the psalm, this is not just merely a song, but this is a historical reference telling what they were supposed to do, what they could have done, and wherein their failure may have been. So let's notice beginning at verse 5 now, that God gave them the testimony in Jacob. What was that? Well, that was the law. He established a testimony in Jacob. What do you mean, testimony in Jacob? And appointed a law in Israel. God gave Israel a law. He gave them a revelation. So God gave them the law, God gave them the statutes, the commandments, and the judgments. Now what were they to do with that? Well, look at verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. One generation was to tell the next generation. Look at verse 3. Which we have heard and have known, and our fathers have told us. There were things that our fathers told us about the mighty works of God. We learned about those, not because we saw them, but our fathers told us about those things. Verse 4, and will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works which he has done. So one generation is to tell the next generation the mighty works of God. Verse 5, there is the testimony in Jacob that has been given that they should make them known to their children. 
So verse 3, verse 4, verse 5 says they were to take this law and one generation was to tell the next generation, including the mighty works of God. Now look at verse 6. Why were they to tell the next generation? They were to tell the next generation that they may know. That the next generation might know then. Now when the next generation doesn't know the law of God, it's because the previous generation didn't tell that second generation. Same verse, verse 6 that one generation may teach the next. Look at verse 6, the children who uh, would be born, that they may raise and declare them to their children. The design of God was, here's the law that is given, you take it and teach it to your children, so that when they rise up and understand, they'll teach it to their children. So that when they rise up, they'll teach it to their children. And it was to go from generation to generation. Look at verse 7, that they may set their hope in God. And verse 7, that they may not forget the works of God. So one generation was to teach the next generation so that they would know the law, they may teach the next generation, and they may set their hope in God and they wouldn't forget God. But Judges 2.10 says the next generation forgot about God. So what's your conclusion? The conclusion is that generation didn't teach the next generation. But let's go further. This time, let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. We're familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses said, here's what's to take place. This was on the eve of crossing over into the land of Canaan. And as Joshua is giving, or rather Moses, is giving his last 30 days of instruction, those four sermons, or three, depending on how you outline that. We remember going through all of that recently. But those sermons that he has delivering to the children of Israel just before they enter into the land, he reminds them, here's what's going to have to happen. When you go into the, next, into the, the land of Canaan, you're going to have to take the law and teach it diligently to your children. So let's notice this in chapter 6, and we're going to come in, at our close of our study back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 as well. But I want you to notice verses 6 and 7. He mentioned at verse 1 the commandments and the statutes and the judgments of the Lord and the revelation. Now verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So what Moses said, you take the word and you teach it to the next generation. They didn't have to see the same things. But you're going to teach them the same things that you've heard and that you've known. Now what we need to realize is the power and the sufficiency of the word to do the job. Do you think if you're in that next generation that you may say, you know what, I just wish my children could have seen the crossing of the Red Sea. I wish they could have seen the plagues. I wish they could have experienced seeing manna fall from heaven. I wish they could have seen the water come from the rock. I think they would have faith like I've got. Oh no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. We need to have power, or a faith in the power and the sufficiency of the word to do the job. Let's look at some passages in the New Testament that will help us. In John chapter 17, in Jesus' prayer for unity, that he not only prayed for the disciples, his immediate apostles, he didn't only pray for them alone, but he says, I pray for those who believe on me through their word. Now notice at verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe on me through their word. That's you, that's me. You see, I wasn't there with Christ. I did not see him raise the dead. I wasn't there for the raising of Lazarus. I wasn't there, nor were you, when he healed the blind. I wasn't there and saw that. But I can take the words of the apostles and I can read it and I can believe just like the apostles believe, have the same kind of faith they have, and I'm believing through their word. We need to have faith in the power and the sufficiency of the word to accomplish that. 
Here's a very familiar text. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. How do you have faith? It's not by seeing the miracle, not by seeing the wonders. Power is in the word. Let's go to John chapter 20. Do you remember when Thomas doubted and said, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see it myself? And I want you to notice in verse 28 and 29 that when Thomas finally came to the point that he said, now my Lord and my God, Jesus said at verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. And that's me. I haven't seen the Lord. You haven't seen the Lord. You weren't there to put your hand into the prints of the, uh, of the nails in his hand. You didn't thrust your hand into his side. But you can have the same kind of faith that Thomas had based on the testimony of the world. Word. Now here's the thing that I'm learning from that. The only way to ensure that your children will know God and serve him is to teach them the word. There's no magical formula. There's no... Uh, Magical thing that if I could just get them to see this, if I could just get them to witness, if they could just experience this particular thing, they're going to have faith. The only way to ensure that they have that same kind of faith is for you to teach them the word. Now, here's the goal. Let's go back to Judges 2 and in verse 10. The goal is for the next generation to know God. The generation for you as you raise your children, your grandchildren, and for you yourself, is to know God. Let's go back to Judges 2 and in verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. So the goal should be in raising and the rearing of our children, we want our children to know the Lord. How often is our goal, I want, to, I want my child to be well-educated. I want my child to have a well-rounded experience in life. I want my child to uh, have lots of friends. I want them to get a good education and make money. But is your goal for your child to know the Lord? Now let's talk about what that means. Knowing God means to have a close relationship with God. Knowing God does not merely mean that I know there is a God. And I know of God. But it means a very close relationship with him. Let's see this in Galatians chapter 4. Let's turn to the book of Galatians and notice in chapter 4 this expression, knowing God is used. And how is it used? What do we learn in the context? Well, look at verse 5, first of all. Verse 5 talks about there are those who are adopted as sons. It's talking about Gentiles. That's us. We're not Jews. We're Gentiles and we've been adopted as sons. So God has made us his children. We've been adopted as sons of God, children of God. And so those who are adopted as sons, and verse 6 says they cry, Abba, Father. We cry out to God as God being our Father, he says. Then notice also that prior to this, at verse 8, they did not know God. Prior to being adopted as sons, they did not know God. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who by nature were not gods. There was a time when they did not know God. Now verse 9. Verse 9 shows me that to know God means to be known by God. But now after that you have known God, or rather are known by God. I want to suggest to you there's a difference in knowing someone and being known by them. You know many celebrities, but they don't know you. I know the president. 
He don't know me. He don't know me. I know the governor. He doesn't have a clue who I am. You see, to know God is a very close relationship with God. It is not only that you know of God and you know about God, know some facts about God, but you know Him very well and He knows you too. So when we talk about our children knowing God, does your child know God? Do my children understand and know God in the sense of Galatians and Judges too? Does, do they know God? We're talking about do they have a very close relationship with God? We may raise our children and they know there is a God and they know about God. They know some facts about God, but they may not know God. Secondly, to know God means to trust God. You see, the Christian puts everything on the line trusting that God's way is best. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. But he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the reward of those who diligently seek him. That if I do what he says, he's going to reward me for it. Let's go to the 37th Psalm. The 37th Psalm gives us some insight that we are to commit our ways to the Lord. That's not always easy to do. Look at verse 3 and in verse 5. He said, trust in the Lord and do good. Look at verse 5. Commit your ways to the Lord and trust also in Him. Well, there's a difference in saying I trust God. But then do you trust God to the point you're willing to commit your ways to the Lord? That the Lord says, do this, but you think this is the better way, but you know that's not what the Lord wants you to do. But you're going to trust the Lord in the sense that you're going to do what he says because you think that's, that's got to be the right way because that's what God said. Maybe it's in discipline in our children. Maybe it's in church discipline. Maybe it's in taking a stand for what's right on the doctrinal matter. I know that that doesn't seem right, but that's the way the Lord said, and so therefore that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust the Lord. Psalm 112 and in verse 7 shows that one who truly fears God and trusts God is not afraid of bad news. There may be some bad news come your way. Maybe about a loved one. It may be about you. And we should be fearful of bad news if we truly put our trust in God. You see, knowing God not only means I trust God, but it means I fear God. Back to Psalm 112 and verse 1. The fear of the Lord means you delight in his commandments. There is the delight in the commandments of the Lord because indeed we fear God. You see, Jesus had this fear. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, if you will, chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Jesus had this fear. And what I want you to see is he talks about the branch, the root or the stem of Jesse. That the spirit of the Lord rests upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see, Jesus had that fear to know God's will and to carry it out. Let's go to Deuteronomy. This is quite interesting to me. Deuteronomy 6 and in verse, verse uh, 13. If you're not familiar with Deuteronomy 6 verse 13, you will recognize the quotation because you are familiar with Matthew chapter 4, no doubt. Look at verse 13. You shall fear your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. That was the verse Jesus quoted when he said that uh, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shall you serve. You say, well, that's not the same quotation. But Jesus quoted it differently, didn't he? Because what I'm learning from that is when Jesus quoted it in Matthew chapter 4, he was using the term worship instead of the term fear. So fear and worship are connected close together. Because of Jesus' use of that. You see, with fear we gain knowledge. But I want to suggest to you that fear means loving God. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You love God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your might. 
We'll come back to that one in just a few moments. Deuteronomy chapter 11 means you, love means you obey and you serve. And that's the greatest of all commandments. Now, I quickly mentioned that to summarize and talk about these four principles. But here is the goal for the next generation. When you take all of that, that knowing God means a close relationship with God. Knowing God means you trust God. It means you fear God and you love God. Those four principles are what we want to instill in the next generation. The goal should be clear. But how on earth can I accomplish that? How can I ensure that my children and my grandchildren, the next generation, have that same kind of fear of God and love of God and trusting God? How can I ensure that they know God? Well, that brings us then to another point. The question is, how did Israel fail in that? Well, that's where we get to as we talk about how to be assured the job is being done. How can I be assured this job's going to be done of instilling that into the next generation? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. How can I make sure that my children know God? How can I make sure of that? Well, here's the first thing in verses 1 to 6. Live in obedience and faithfulness yourself. Verses 1 to 6. Live in obedience and faithfulness yourself. Let's start with verse 1. Moses instructed the people saying, first of all, you need to observe the commandments. Now this is the commandment and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them. Not to teach you that you may know them, but that you might observe them. So here's the first thing you do. You observe the commandments. Now, he gets to what you're going to do with teaching your children in a moment, but first of all, you observe the commandments. Number two, notice at verse two, you fear, fear the Lord, that you may fear the Lord. You have this awe and respect for God for yourself, and you be afraid of displeasing him. Number three, notice that you also keep all the commandments, that you may fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments. You see, your children are going to pick up on the fact that you give great emphasis to this, but then you let these other commands go. They're going to take notice of that. So you make sure you keep all the commandments of the Lord. Notice at verse 3, be careful. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it that he may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Careful obedience. See, your children are going to pick up on that as well. Are you just kind of generally going in the direction of doing what's right or are you carefully and very circumspectly trying to do exactly what the Lord would have you to do? They're going to pick up on that. Now look at verse 4 and 5. I said we'd come back to this. Then love the, the Lord your God with all of your heart. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Put everything you have into the love and the service of the Lord. Your children are going to pick up on that as well. Now look at verse 6. You take the word to your heart. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. That's not memorization of the word. Word. But you take it into your heart in that you, you absorb the word and become completely uh, engrossed, with, I mean, involved with the word till it becomes a part of your life. That's the idea of that. Now, here's the question. How can you expect your children to know the Lord if you don't have it at yourself? That's what Moses is saying. If you want that next generation to fear and know the Lord, then you make sure you fear and know the Lord. If you want to make sure your children know God, you make sure you know God. So you make sure you're doing it yourself. You're fearing God, keeping the commandments. You're careful, giving it everything you have, and you take the word of God into your heart. Then you're ensuring your children are going to know that. 
But now look at verses 7 to 9. He says, first of all, you live it yourself. Secondly, you then take it and teach it to your children. You can't teach it until you know it. So go back to verse 6. These words shall be in your heart. They must first be in your heart. You can't teach what you don't know. You can't teach your children about loving the Lord if you don't understand what that means. You can't teach them about the fear of God if you don't have a clue what the fear of God means. You can't teach them about truth versus error if you don't know the difference in truth versus error. So the text is saying work hard at instilling them into the, into the hearts of your children. Notice now at verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The word that is translated diligently is the same word translated several times, like in Psalm 45 and verse 5, sharp or to wet, as in the W-H-E-T. And it's the idea of taking a sharp instrument and inserting it, forcing it in. So it's as if you're forcing a sharp instrument into their heart. You take the word of God and press it into their hearts, he said. Sometimes parents say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, force my children to know the word. I just want to throw it out there and I just want them to kind of, if they, they choose it of their own free will. Moses said, you teach it diligently to you. You press it into them, he said. And here's how you do that. You talk of it often. Look at verse seven. You shall teach your children diligently and talk of it when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. What does he mean? You don't just talk about it on Sunday when you go to Bible class. You don't just talk about it uh, at the sermon hour. But in daily life, you're going to have situations where the word of God could come up and you could say, you know, this is a situation where this principle that we learned in Bible class the other day fits. And here's the reason we're not doing this is because, you know, we learned from the sermon the other day that we're supposed to live this way and this is here's the, where that principle fits. And you know, in our Bible reading the other day, we learned this other principle and that's why we're doing this over here or not doing that. You talk of them daily when you lie down and when you rise up. See, that job rests primarily in the home, not in the Bible class teachers, but that rests in the home. The question is, how hard are you working at teaching your children? We're trying to make sure the next generation knows the Lord. And then notice verses 10 through 12 to close. Watch for the problem of affluence. Let's begin at verse 10. We're Deuteronomy 6 at verse 10. And it shall be that when the Lord God brings you, into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you, you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and hewn out wells that you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you're eaten and are full, when you've had it better than you've ever had it in your life, then beware, lest you forget the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, life in the wilderness was not very affluent. As they made their way through the wilderness, it wasn't very, wasn't very affluent at all. But when they arrived in Canaan, things were quite different. In fact, he said it's going to be different. You're going to have houses like you've never had. You're going to have vineyards like you've never owned. You're going to have wells. And it's going to be a problem for those that enter in because now they have sudden affluence. But perhaps it's even a greater problem for those that grew up in that and that's all they'd ever known. And I want to suggest to you that today by the world standards and by yesteryear, we have arrived. We have all sorts of entertainment, we have television, we have sports, we have schooling, we have computers, we have jobs, we have friends, and it just keeps going on of how things are prosperous and how we do quite well in our society. The warning is then beware lest you forget about God. How can I make sure 
that my children and my grandchildren and the next generations know the Lord. You live it yourself, you teach it to your children, and then watch for the problem of affluence is what Moses warned about. Joshua 2 and verse 10 said, There arose a generation after them that did not know the Lord. The next generation didn't know the Lord, didn't have a clue about the Lord, didn't understand about the Lord. But the previous generation, they knew the Lord, Joshua and the elders, Joshua 24, Judges 2. How could they transmit that faith to the next generation? Well, they could take the word and teach it to them is what they could do. You see, the goal is for the next generation to know the Lord. How can I make sure that's done? I can make sure that's done by living it myself, teaching it to my children. Take the word and teach it to the children. They didn't have to see the same thing. They just have to hear the word. And then watch for the problem of affluence. There may be one present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins? Would you acknowledge your faith? And be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?